action. Welcome to Torn Stamps, the Trash Movie Podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcasts at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk and... Josh, you were winning the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we went to the movies. In season four, we watched all of Quentin Tarantino's films and it was wonderful. All nine. All nine. Well, all... ten releases, nine films. Oh yeah, that's true. Because he considered Kill Bill Bonds. one film. And I do as well. Do you? Uh, no, I see it as two films. Really? Yeah, I, I would. I will fast forward through volume two until I get the good stuff, and then I'll not bother with the rest. <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily mean you see it as not one film, because you can fast forward through a film. Yeah. No, but because the, they are released as two separate films. So I can watch volume one, which I love, and I can just watch it on its own, and that's fine. Yeah. And then I don't need to watch volume two. But volume two doesn't work without one, and one doesn't really work without volume two. Uh, I disagree. Hang on, no. (laughs) Volume one absolutely isn't concluded without volume two. You can't just watch volume one and be like, all right, I'm happy with that. I understand the story. There's no conclusion. It just ends. But it's like you could watch an episode of a TV show Mm -hmm. that you love. It doesn't mean you have to watch the next episode of the TV show. The story can, can still work on its own. Okay, so with Kill Bill, if you only ever saw the first film what is the story no I, i'm glad that i know what happens in part two because i know how the story concludes right doesn't, doesn't mean i have to watch it but i just see it as one film released over what eight months but that's like saying that the lord of the rings films are one film when actually they're three separate films no but they are three separate films but it's one story uh-huh. but kill bill is two separate films no no There's one story because the way that Peter Jackson structured those three films. They are three defined films. Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2 are not structured like two films. They're structured like one film. We end Volume 1 with Sophie in the the bonnet and then rolling down the hill and then telling Bill what she's done. Mm -hmm. And then we start Volume 2 with a slight recap with Uma Thurman in the car. If they're one film. But they're released as two as two volumes. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, you know, when you're watching a, a TV show, it goes previously on Desperate like Housewives. Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Vampire Slayer. I see it as one large film. <laughs> so happy for you. Yes. One large film. <laughs> um, do you know what I realised this week? I was in the shower. Oh, no. And I realised it's getting really hard to wash myself. I need a carer. I realised that <laughs> I, even though we've just watched all his films pretty much back to back to back to back to back, oh. I realised I'd seen them all before, which is odd because when you start watching a filmmaker's back catalogue and you sort of get into them, there's usually one or two you have seen or there's usually one or two you haven't seen. But with Quentin Tarantino, I'd seen all his films before, obviously except the, the, the recent one. And I, it got me thinking, is there any other filmmaker still working now who is so ingrained into popular culture that it's almost like his films and him are completely joined. 
mm-hmm. as in people know the films and they know him. He is a rock star filmmaker. Is there any other filmmaker who has that kind of status working now? Yes. Who? Christopher Nolan. I disagree. I wouldn't say he's a rock star, but he is somebody who denotes quality and people will go to see his film because it's a Christopher Nolan film. I disagree on that. Hmm. In our circles, as in people who love film, yes, he's very well known. But if you said to someone who isn't particularly into film, they go because it's a social thing, not because it's a passion. They, mm. I don't know if they would know who Christopher Nolan was. They would be able to say, oh, I remember Inception. Yeah, it was the film with all the, like, the mm. folding thing. Oh, yeah, that was really weird. Mm. Oh, it's such a weird film. But they wouldn't think... Christopher Nolan is the guy that made Dunkirk and Batman and The Prestige and Memento mm. and Following and Incep- not Inception, Interstellar. And they mm. won't know that he's got a new one coming out. Yeah. He doesn't have that status in popular culture in the same way that Quentin Tarantino does. Nolan was like my main guy that jumped into my head. Maybe not then, I don't know. Even Paul Thomas Anderson, who of that 1990s period where all Mm. these new cool filmmakers were coming out of the indie world, I think Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino are the only ones who have lasted Mm. at a certain level. Even Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't have the same rock star following. You wouldn't say to someone, oh, Phantom Thread's coming out. They go, what's Phantom Thread? Mm. It's by Paul Thomas Anderson. Who? Have you heard of Boogie Nights? Oh yeah, I've heard of that. I haven't seen it. Is that when, when Mark Wahlberg gets his dick out? His prosthetic cock. His prosthetic cock, yeah. Tarantino has a cool pulp culture reference yeah. status that is the same as... You know, Quentin Tarantino could be referenced in other films in the same way that he references Chuck Berry or references mm. Superman or references all these things that he references in his own films. But the weird thing is that I don't feel like we've really seen a true Tarantino film... For a long time. He's released films. Mm-hmm. And Django, yeah, bits of, bits of, you know, parts of it feel very Tarantino. And Glorious Bastards feels like... I think that's pure... grown up. I think that's pure Tarantino because it's yeah. episodic. Yeah. But in terms of it's like... It's violent, it's cheeky, it's revisionist. Yeah. But when you say Tarantino-esque, you're thinking about extreme violence, mm-hmm. extreme pop culture immersion... Um, quotable monologues, iconic mm-hmm. characters. And really, what people are talking about is Pulp Fiction. And Kill Bill. Yeah, those two films are mm-hmm. the things that you go, that's Tarantino-esque. Yes. You don't go, oh, I really want to watch Tarantino um, do his thing. Let's watch Jackie Brown. Yeah. Even though Jackie Brown arguably is, you know, if not his best film, his second or third best film. It's it's not a Tarantino-esque film. He doesn't, he doesn't fulfill his own criteria. In, in Jackie Brown or even in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Or in Hateful Eight. I mean, Hateful Eight has a lot of them. Oh, Hateful Eight is, 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 it is pure Quentin Tarantino, but it's Quentin Tarantino when he doesn't remember what he does Yeah, well. exactly. So it is, yeah. it's like him, Quentin, Hateful Eight and Death Proof is Quentin Tarantino being the, the hideous Ideal. end yeah. of Quentin Tarantino. It's almost like he's yeah. a parody of himself in those yeah. films, whereas Pop Fiction and Kill Bill is him on, you know, all the cylinders are firing in, in the best possible, most focused, apart from volume two, way. Mm. Yeah. That's what people recognize. Yes, I agree completely. 
Yeah. Do you think he's always in competition with himself, either in his opinion or us as the movie watchers? I think that he's very clever at finding like specific ideas and uh, stories, I guess, that will create controversy, that will become a conversation piece. Like, you don't just talk about his films. You actually talk about what they mean in a wider cultural sense. It's not just you're watching his story. Is that him doing that purposely? Or is that just how, it, it, is that just how people react to his work mm. based on the fact that he was such a controversial, new, fresh voice of 90s cinema that that's never gone away? Yeah. Maybe it's just his personal taste in film. It's, it's just the things that he is drawn towards are naturally controversial, like going and doing a film that has elements of the Manson murders. Hmm. Um, you know, that's... Or slavery. And slavery. Or the Holocaust. Yeah. Like... But his tastes come out of a period of cinema where... And, and the type of genre cinema, grindhouse, gritty, mm. down and dirty films that were controversial. Yeah. Absolutely were controversial and they were exploitative. Yeah. He loves exploitation cinema so it does seem fitting and maybe it would be a letdown if his films didn't generate at least some controversy yeah that's true and like people want to talk about these things and like there was a i read an article today that was um about once upon a time in hollywood and there's a website called vox and they basically have branded once a time in hollywood the movie to argue about this summer. It's almost like you could say that about pretty much every single time Tarantino's released a film is people are going to talk about it. Partly because of his character as a director and as a, as a, as a person, like he will blabber on about stuff and yes. he, won't, he won't self-censor, he won't self-edit. He'll just say stuff like, so when Shannon Lee said, I feel like Tarantino needs to apologize for how he portrayed my father in mm -hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino doesn't go, I respectfully... Um, kind of apologize yeah i don't mm. apologize he would just he would just say no actually um i've read about this i've read about that i know exactly what mm -hmm. he's like i've seen this i've seen that i know exactly like you don't know what you're talking about he's got backbone he does too yeah. many too many of these hollywood yeah, yeah. startlets and hollywood stars are too quick to say sorry because they're scared of what it's gonna do to their reputation i love yeah. timothy chalamet but i think it's absolute timothy. bullshit that when the Me Too thing was hitting, he publicly, probably pressurized by his PR, uh -huh. said, I'm really sorry the fact that I was in um, Woody Allen's new film. If I could go back uh, and not, yeah. you know, I'm paraphrasing here. I think it's bullshit. Either you do something and stand by it, or, I mean, there's no point in apologizing. There's no point in apologizing for something that you believed in. Yes. Where's the backbone? At least yeah. Quentin Tarantino has backbone. And I, I think there's only maybe one or two times that he's apologised over the years because he's been called up on something he said back in the past. Mm. That he now has developed and he feels differently about. It maybe wasn't even an apology. It was more of a, let me refine what I said. And it was actually around to do... It was around about um, uh, the Roman Polanski rape case. Ah, and, but mm. he also did it with the Weinstein stuff where he acknowledged that... Um, was it oh, Mina, he could have done Mina more. Savari or something like that? No, not Mina Savari. Your friend Rose? No. So brave. 
She's so ruddy, bloody brave. It's her birthday soon. Um, What's her name? Rose West. Going out to party. Rose West? (laughs) What's her name? Rose Rose McGowan. McGowan. Oh, I had a dream about Rose McGowan last night. What was she doing? Was she saying, I'm so brave? It's my, uh, no, it's my weird dream. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you this. It's ridiculous. Tell us. (laughs) Don't give us half the cookie. It's my dream that I constantly have. You have a recurring dream about Rose? I have a recurring dream about the cast of Charmed reuniting. (laughs) 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 And last night it felt so real. I was like, oh my God, they're finally doing it. Hooray. She can't do Charmed. Then I woke up. She's too busy being brave. Yeah, I know. So ruddy, bloody brave. But actually, what you were saying about um, him having backbone and all that stuff, it made me think about when James Gunn was fired by Disney on uh, Guardians oh, yeah. 3. And then they were like, oh, sorry. Oh, you've gone to DC. Oh, well, we hire you then. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> it's so bullshit. They didn't but have that's corporate culture. But they didn't have a backbone. They literally just cut off the limb, didn't they? It was ridiculous. Yeah. That's, that's corporate culture. And Quentin Tarantino has come from the indie world. doesn't matter that... The Weinstein Company was essentially a corporation. It was like a bunch of pirates, mm-hmm. you know, not ignoring, but putting aside Harvey's alleged crimes or whatever. Uh-huh. The way they ran their their business was very um, not destructive, but you know when a, a new company comes in and just completely disassembles the, the business model. Apple did it in the eighties and the nineties. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I come disruptive. That's it. When you know Facebook did it, when they come in and they are disruptive. They, they blasted the doors open of Hollywood and the indie world, you know, indie cinema completely took over Hollywood and Quentin Tarantino was part of that. Hmm. They don't subscribe to this bullshit corporate way that everyone has to watch the P's and Q's and say sorry when they don't have to say sorry yeah. just to appease the shareholders. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think if Quentin Tarantino does get involved in a Star Trek movie... What the fuck is that going to look like? I don't want to see that. Because I can't imagine they're going to allow him to have unbridled access and a final cut and to do whatever he wants with those toys. I can't imagine Kirk turning around and saying the N-word. I can't imagine Mr. Sulu saying motherfucker. Yeah. well, that, that I, I would generally watch happen. it. I would <laughs> yeah. absolutely watch it because... Uh, Star Trek Beyond was bullshit. See Star Trek like you've never seen it before. Yeah. <laughs> In space. No one can hear you motherfucking scream. <laughs> if Quentin Tarantino was asked to do a Marvel film or a Star Wars film, what the fuck would that look like? Because they, they clearly operate in such a way that they take younger Hollywood uh, directors that have maybe come from the indie world and who maybe need a step up for the next level and they essentially give them this step up but the compromise is they have to do as they're told yeah which is why lord and miller were kicked off because they weren't allowed mm-hmm. to do what they wanted to do colin trevorrow josh task or trask or whatever his name was mm-hmm. he was meant to do he was meant to do one of the star wars films wasn't he very That's early it. on he was meant to do a star wars mm-hmm. film and he had to step back because Fantastic Four was such yeah. a fucking... Just Trank, isn't it? Trank, that's it. Yeah. Um, it was such a fucking mess. Mm. But so it wasn't his fault either. Wasn't his fault either, no. Yeah. But if Quentin Tarantino was suddenly asked by Lucasfilm, can you come and direct a new Star Wars film? What the fuck would that look like? It wouldn't be a Quentin Tarantino film. It would be a movie that just happened to be directed by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, but 
Because Tarantino has only ever made films based in the Tarantino verse. With the exception of Jackie Brown. But even that's more of a Quentin Tarantino verse than the Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's still it's still a Tarantino film. It still has the hallmarks of a Tarantino film. It just doesn't have all of them. Mm. Um, so he, you know, Tarantino makes a very specific kind of fantasy film, and then transplanting him into Star Trek, you, yeah, you genuinely have no idea what he would do. Like it would be like a what if. It really. It would is. be like a really weird episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, exactly. It's like if. Christopher Nolan just suddenly decided to make an, an American Pie sequel. It would just be like, what, how is that going to work? <laughs> I would watch it. I would watch it as well, but it'd be very uh, inward thinking. Can you think of any love stories in his films? Well, I mean, the first one I thought of was The Bride and Bill. But that's not the love story. That's a, that's a post-love story. That's a breakup story. That is, uh, yeah, yes, that is yeah. the ultimate breakup. Yeah, yeah. It's like, they're not just. You try to kill me, I'm gonna fucking kill you. Yeah, they're not. I mean, they're not just divorcing or breaking up. They're, you know, it's the ultimate breakup. Yeah, it is. It's like I'm gonna break. You. But there's no like love story. There's no like kiss in the third act. There's no. No. There's barely any sex scenes. That's they're true. very sex- sexless movies. Yeah, they really are. Like the closest you get, and this isn't correct, but the closest you get is. Uh, with Vince Vega and Maya <laughs> when she uh, she actually overdoses before they can have sex. They're, clearly they're going to have sex. Well, then the butt-fucking later on, the rape scene. Yeah, the rape scene. And then there's, in Jackie Brown, there's the, very, there's the lust between Jackie and what's-his-face. Maybe that is the only love story in the entire... But it's not really a... But it's not a love story. Because like, it doesn't end the way that you would expect it to. And we t- he and we stays, he it. doesn't go off yeah and we talked about it in the episode where it's not about them falling in love it's about them wanting to fuck each other basically yeah or him wanting to fuck her at least because he sees her as this like uh you know kind of con beauty queen type thing he's like he's in awe of her and she needs his help yeah exactly so maybe she doesn't Um, even respect him well she seems to be thankful doesn't she because she gives him x amount of money but then it's not like it's not like she loves him or, or even fancies him because hmm. they don't have sex. They have a bit of a weird, smudgy kiss, don't they, at the end? Oh, uh, yeah. I think I hate this word. I'm not going to use it, actually. The closest he comes to a love story... Don't give me half the cookie. Is, uh, well, it's bromance, is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which yeah. is there is actually almost uh, an undercurrent of homoeroticism between... They actually say it in the film. It's like he's the closest thing he's more than a brother but less than a wife like he yes. actually says that i about, carry his load yeah yeah yeah, that yeah. As well. so it's like they ha- actually cliff and uh rick in once upon a time in hollywood they have a really close almost marital relationship they just mm. don't live together and they don't have sex that sounds um, like a perfect marriage <laughs> it does actually um so yeah that's the closest we've come maybe because there is genuine affection between them and you don't see much genuine affection in Tarantino films. That's why this this one feels like the sweetest one. Mm. Jules and Vince, there's some affection there, but yeah. Jules has no problem walking away from it. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they are very much, um, they're together all the time. Baby and Pumpkin, is it Baby? Baby and Pumpkin. Pumpkin, uh, Tim Roth's character in Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. Oh... I mean, that's not romantic, is it? No, it's, it's almost like... <laughs> that's um, not a love story. There's something going on there. What's it called when you, you can't live without 
you co oh. co coexistent. Is that co what it is? Co uh, codependent. codependent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sex is very much a weapon in Quentin Tarantino's films. Yes. The rape in Pulp Fiction. In Pulp Fiction. The rape in Kill Bill. Yeah, and also when Oranishi sleeps with the my mob boss dude. Yeah. The only the only hint at a character genuinely having love for another character is Django loving his wife so much mm. that he's willing to go back into the lion's den to go get her. Yeah, and it weirdly makes him less of a hero because as we discussed, he's not a hero. He does no. he does all the wrong things and it's purely because he wants to get his wife back. Yeah. He, he does to... all the wrong things for potentially the right reasons. Yes, but he doesn't he's not a hero because a hero is like Captain America or mm. let's be let's be colorblind Falcon where you're looking to save everybody. Falcon's colorblind. Yeah, exactly. Oh wow. Um you're looking to save anybody regardless. Mm. Spider-Man does it. Like it's kind of like you're not just on one mission and if you are you're still going to help the people on the way. You're Whereas selfless. With Django, he is selfish like the bride is selfish. Yeah. She's self-motivated. And she's selfish, and that's fine. Mm. It's okay to be selfish as a character in a film. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not in um, life, not in life. Role. His relationship with the N-word changed from the early days to the last yeah. 10 years. Well, because in Reservoir Dogs, it was very much white racist. <laughs> but every single other word was, yeah. was an N-word. And it wasn't just the fact that they were using the N-word, it was the fact that they were discussing the supposed difference between a black woman and a white woman mm. in a really in a really awful, degrading way. And like, mm. we have discussed that clearly in the episode about they are racist, they get their comeuppance, but they don't get their comeuppance directly in relation to their racism. No, so it, it's kind of problematic. Um, but yeah, but by the time he gets to... I mean, in Reservoir Dogs, in the first three, mm. that weird 90s, almost trilogy... Bubble. There, they, it, it's very much a, a fetishized, willy-nilly use of that word hmm. but as it goes on as his career goes on there seems to be more thought and context put into the use of the word hmm. so by the time we get to Django it's being used and hateful eight as well it's being used because of the context because of the setting it's being used in a political context rather than just a character just a word yeah just a word so do you I think do you think he was I, I mean I'm not gonna I'm going to assume that is how Tarantino talks. So do you think he Well, was... just in general, everyday life, he'll be like, pass yeah. the N-word salt. Because he has no... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we talk about how his scripts, he's, everyone sounds like Tarantino because he, sounds, yeah. he writes how he talks. Mm -hmm. So does, do you think he was shocked when he released films where everyone was using the N-word, especially white people? Do you think he was shocked at the reaction? Because Maybe he's never backed off it. No, he's never backed off it. And he said that he has the right to use it because yeah. his parents split up. His mum had lots of black boyfriends. Uh -huh. So he feels ingrained in black culture. Uh -huh. So he feels that he can use it because he's part of the crowd. That's like saying my dad or my brother is gay. Therefore, I'm, I can use the word pifter or faggot. I can call you a faggot. Your dad's gay. <laughs> oh, congratulations, Mr. Winning. <laughs> But it's telling there's not one utterance of the N-word in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Even uh, though it's as much about black people as Reservoir Dogs was, you know, it's, um, as in the, it's not. Basically. 
Yes, but, I mean, it's not like Hollywood was living in a complete bubble. The civil rights movement would have been, oh, yeah. you know, uh, edging over into Hollywood. Mm. We have some Mexicans in that film. Don't cry in front of the Mexicans. Yeah. Could have easily put a, a single black person in there. Mm. But I, I really do think maybe it was a, a concession he had to make to Sony, who were giving him 95 million dollars to make this film mm. his biggest budget to date because the Reservoir dogs was two million 2.2 yeah i think Django was 60 wow hateful eight was definitely less but you can see why that why once upon a time in hollywood cost that much because he was recreating the 60s yeah and yeah. also brad pitt and leonardo car- dicaprio yeah. is, is 20 million on their own Although Leo took a pay cut yeah. to be in the film. So yeah. 10 million each yeah. they got. Margot Robbie probably about half They don't need any more money. No, it's like, oh, you're don't. so selfless taking a pay cut. You don't need $10 million. No, you don't. That but is ridiculous. That's the way that industry works. Yeah. Um, one thing we didn't talk about in the, um, in the last episode for Once Upon a Time in dot, 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 Hollywood, the marketing was fucking no, terrible. Dot, 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 in Hollywood. Oh, is it? That's, oh. Yeah. It's like once upon a time. Dot, 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 dot. In Hollywood. In but Hollywood? There should be a question at the end. The marketing was fucking terrible. The posters, I saw one on the, on oh, the way here God, on the bus. Yeah. So fucking dull. Yeah. The trailer was uninspired. Uh-huh. And the lack of interviews as well. He's done a couple of podcasts, Quentin Tarantino, but basically hmm. he hasn't really promoted this film. And I hmm. wonder why. Have they... Have they asked him to step back or is he now working on something where he needs to be elsewhere? Has he got to the age where he's like, my films will sell themselves. You don't need me out there. Mm. You know, I don't need to sing for my supper. That supper's going to buy itself. Mm. I genuinely don't know. That's, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? So have Leo and Brad been doing press? I think they've all done some press together as like a foursome. Uh Wait, who's number four? Uh, Quentin Tarantino, oh, Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, and then Margot Robbie, okay. who probably spoke more in the interviews than she does in the film. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to yeah. be okay. She's going to be okay. Uh, the music yeah. in his films. Yes. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it obviously started off very zeitgeisty. And I think as he got older and, and his career progressed, I think there was less of a a desire or less of a want to have the big songs, have the songs hit in a certain way. And the songs became more subtle and more relevant to the plot. To the point where Hateful Eight actually has pretty much no songs. It's just Ennio Morricone's score. Uh, Yes, but there's also, um, well, there's the one that, um, what's her face? I can't remember her name. What? The the woman. Daisy Duke. Yeah, she sings, doesn't she sing? (laughs) She sings a song. Oh, yeah. But also they use the White Stripes Apple Blossom, which is one of my uh, favourite um, White Stripes songs off uh-huh. to style. Um, but yeah, it is mainly Ini Morricone's score. Mm. Obviously, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that is the 60s version of the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Yeah. But the Pulp Fiction soundtrack hits harder yeah. because it was way more zeitgeisty than this film. Yeah. Yeah, like, does he, he does collaborate, doesn't he? In, in what respect? Of, in terms of putting together soundtracks, it's not just he goes into his collection like Richard Curtis does and just like picks. No, I think he write, he writes to yeah. the music, so he has to find the songs almost mm. first. Then he writes to the feel yeah. of the song. So do you think the well's running slightly dry? Like he's just run out of of big hitting songs. Possibly, yeah. Because he's, he's never reused the song, has he? 
Occasionally he does. Like what? Uh, well, I mean, it's not really a song, but isn't it in Inglorious Bastards where he uses the Ironside theme that he used in Kill Bill? There's, Did he? Yeah, there's, I'm sure it's in Inglorious Bastards where suddenly, for no apparent reason, he recycles a sound, like a theme sound. And it's like, why have you put that in this when it was so specific and apparent in Kill Bill? Really weird. I know that in Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood, he uses that um, that track. I can't remember what he uses, but he uses it at the beginning of Kill Bill and Death Proof to say uh, special feature, double feature. Mm, and you, you hear it. In, in, yeah, yeah, you hear it in, yeah, in, in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, you do. But in terms of like the big... Yeah, that's it. And it's all a bit like... <laughs> it's all a bit wobbly. <laughs> Pingu. <laughs> but in terms of like um, Teenage Wedding by Chuck Berry or, or, or Wish Them Well or whatever it's called... Um, Anything from, you know, the... Crazy Eight... No. Yeah, like... Um, five, six, seven, eight. Death Rides a White Horse. Mm. Uh, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Anything like that hasn't been Death reused. Um 110th Street wasn't reused. Mm. So he's, he's very good at keeping everything as... He's got the landmarks. But he's just very good at containing. That's for Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. I don't... That song has now become synonymous with me. And it's true. Yeah. You know, I can listen to... Um, the Fistful of Dollars soundtrack. And I don't think of Fistful of Dollars, I think of Kill Bill. Mm. So those, he's stolen those songs. Even some stuff on The Exorcist appears in Django. Does it? Yeah. Not the big one. Not the big one, but no. when, the, when The Exorcist ends and the, that, that track yeah, with the strings, yeah. he uses that. So they've all become very synonymous with him. So it might be a, um, a conscious decision not to water down the standard that he has set now with that song mm. i read an interesting article on time.com where it's this is quite controversial in itself but um, they basically did a, a big report where they looked into how many lines of dialogue women versus men get in tarantino films yeah the results are basically as you would expect well, but they're also kind of not really representative because so in jackie brown 30.1 percent mm-hmm. of dialogue is spoken by women and 69.9 percent is spoken by men but that doesn't really represent the film because jackie brown is a huge it's her, it's her film it's named after her she is a yes. huge presence in the film she just doesn't necessarily speak as much as all the other because she's the only female yes and Odell talks at length yeah so yeah yeah, yeah exactly um, so it doesn't really add up, to be honest. And, you know, it's... And then, like, you know, the balance of characters in films by gender as well. Um, and actually, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because there are so many women in the Manson family, um, it's actually 43% of but the But they don't have... They, they no. might as well not be there. They're background I dust. Think, I think it'd be more interesting to see a study into the weight of that character in a Tarantino film. Like you can do it empirically and like, just look at how many lines there are. But what you really want to see um, is how much they play, how much role they play in the plot. Yes. Um, And so Jackie Brown clearly is 98% of that film. 100% it's called Jackie fucking Brown. Yeah. 
So I think you can't really study it in that way. But it was interesting to look at anyway. Mm, but Thanks. it does usually default to a man. There's only yeah. there's only three films where you could say a woman or women are the lead character or characters. Mm-hmm. Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, and Death Proof. Everything has been very male yeah. orientated, hundred percent since. Um, 2009. And yet, the most interesting character in The Hateful Eight is Daisy Danagoo. Yeah, so I can go with that. It's kind of... It's, but she suffers a lot at the hands of men. Yeah, and she's treated as a man, so it, it raises other issues. But Yes, and as we said, that's either great or yeah. very problematic. <laughs> really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not really seen as a human being, is actually the point in that film. She's not but that's, as, quite, you know, that's, quite, so that's quite in keeping with the, the, the times. She's a yeah. criminal, so she yeah, has yeah. the lowest status, even lower than uh, the, the black population who had just been freed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, poor old Daisy. She was a crazy maniac. Poor old Daisy. Daisy Dalnagoo. Where would you like his career to go now? He's got one more film left, if I stick to it. He's got one more film left. Where, what direction do you want to see him go in? Hmm... I don't want Kill Bill Volume 3. I mean, I, actually, I wouldn't You mind. said you did. You want Maya Hawke to be in it. I don't want the title Kill Bill Volume 3. Right. But I would love to see him return to that big flashbang, amazing, loving uh, anime thing that he did with Kill Bill. And I would love to see... Because the film Kill Bill 1 and 2, they, they set up the idea of revenge and how it's cyclical. And you can never break that cycle no matter mm-hmm. what you do, unless you kill everybody who's ever done anything against you or you've done against them. And so I think it would be great, now that enough time has passed, to look at how that cycle does actually perpetuate itself. Um, do you know how I see that? How? I don't see it as a movie. Mm. I see it as a limited series on Netflix or Prime, and it will be a procedural with The Bride and her daughter Bibi, played by Uma Thurman, and Maya Hawke, mm. it would almost be like a exploitation, kung fu, um, black exploitation TV series that is a little bit like the A Team, where they are constantly recruited, if you can find them, to come and help out people who need their help mm. because the authorities won't help them. Alongside of that, you'll have the big bad boss who's actually. Um, the one who's had both eyes popped out. Oh, yeah, L Driver. L Driver. Yeah. Who ha- is helping Vivica Fox's daughter get her revenge yeah. on the bride. I would watch that in a heartbeat. But it have to be directed, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. I wouldn't accept a executive produce yeah. thing. It would have to be him, and it would have to be in the same style as Kill Bill. It yeah. can jump back and forth between live action and anime, and that would be phenomenal. Yeah. Call it the Viper Squad. Perfect. The new Deadly Assassination Viper Squad. Yes. So, okay, where do you want to see his film career go or end? Well, he's been talking about that he might do a horror. And one of the the best non-comedy bits in Hollywood was when Brad Pitt was at the ranch and he was looking for Bruce Dern. Unfortunately, that scene had no payoff, but it it was the most dread-filling aspect of the film mm. more so than anything with the mansons and definitely more so than the end mm-hmm. so if he can work out a way to do a genuinely great horror in his own style that doesn't undermine itself by um, not tying plots together and mm. having too much of the goofy comedy 
that would be a really strong way to end because what I worry about is that his prophecy that all film directors become weak in their in their autumn yeah. years if he ends on a film that is anything less than let's say the status of inglorious bastards mm. he's always going to be remembered as the guy who fizzled out to nothing yeah if he makes something that's worse than death proof or hateful eight he's fulfilled his prophecy mm. i would just wonder what kind of it would look like because he was going to direct scream at one point really yeah he was in line to play because oh, of course of harvey and bob yeah dimension uh, dimension part um, of miramax so, but I don't think that, I feel like that time has now, we've moved on from that postmodern thing. Like clearly what he would have loved about screen, the script for screen. Was because it was so wink, wink, nudge towards the movies. audience. It was yeah. all about movies. So if he does a horror film, I wonder what Tarantino finds scary. Like what is his version of a horror film? Do you know what would be unbelievably brave for him to do? Hmm. A film with as little dialogue as possible mm -hmm. like the opening 20 minutes of there will be blood yeah where it's just whatever the fuck his name is what's his name <laughs> oh, God. oh daniel daniel day lewis yeah. um digging that fucking hole breaking his leg dragging himself to the town and reclaiming that as his land this is my yeah. gold this is my land this is my oil yeah i drink your milkshake i drink it right up <laughs> Where's, where's Daniel Day-Lewis gone? That was beautiful. He was just here. That was beautiful. Um, I would love it if, if he would do a film that is quintessentially Quentin Tarantino. He can mm -hmm. have those monologues. Mm -hmm. He can have that quick, quippy dialogue. But if he does these long stretches with no talking, and that's not just a character driving around or riding a horse, but characters interacting with no dialogue, that would be such a phenomenal way to end that 30-year 10 year 10 film mm. history block i almost think it, he needs to do just like a single location thing we did that just... hateful eight was a single location essentially right, so that's and he thing. fucked it up he did well he did but i think that he could reclaim that i think that if he did like oh a... so you want to bookend it reservoir dogs and yeah he yeah, just I needs think... a he needs a producer he needs lawrence bender back who can mm. actually say to him no <laughs> i don't think so just no. <laughs> and I would actually like to see him reunite with Roger Avery. Yes. That'd be a wonderful way to bury that bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Let's do the grammar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think you've had too many Maltesers and M&Ms. I've not had a single Malteser. Just move those away. I did not eat all those Maltesers. Yeah, I had two Maltesers. Oh, so you did have a single Malteser because you had two. You had double, double. Maltesers. <laughs> yeah, but your boyfriend had some before he left. I'm sure the cat he ate had, like, one. one. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so fucked on sugar. Um, I think the grammar changed as it went on. We haven't seen a black suit with a white tie and a, a, a white shirt and a black tie no. for years. Not since. What was Bruce Lee wearing? Not a tie. No, he wasn't. He was just wearing his Kato uniform. Yeah, it was a black suit with a white shirt. No, it was just a black suit with a, and he had a vest. Oh. Brad Pitt was in a tux, but it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't the Reservoir Dogs, a crazy eighty-eight. Uh -huh. Pulp Fiction costume. So we haven't seen that since Kill Bill. Bill. Yeah. But that's so synonymous with him. He wears that himself, mm -hmm. Quentin Tarantino. He still wears it. But now he's got a costume designer. Yeah, he does. But also he's been making... But he's probably always had a costume designer, but they're very specific to what he wants. Yeah, but he's been making period films. So that... He has, that, yeah. That outfit does not fit into that period. 
mm, of the Nazis or yes. the Hateful Eight. You, yes, that's a very good point. Django or this. I mean, this actually more so. He could have had some black suits and Well, no, because it. it's very born out of that 70s, 80s uh, movies. It comes out of that Tokyo cinema. Yeah, yeah. So it wouldn't have made sense. Yeah. That's why Hollywood was so maybe, different because maybe, he hadn't been influenced by anything pre-1970 apart from, the, apart from the spaghetti westerns visually he becomes panoramic which he wasn't explain all those beautiful shots in uh inglorious bastards and in django and mm-hmm. hateful eight they're like these gorgeous landscape shots that obviously that happens because of the locations of, of the plot and but, 65 and 70 millimeter film but even in kill bill which has some of those sorts of settings you don't get those gorgeous vistas mm. that become a hallmark of Tarantino's later films. No, but what you get with, with Kill Bill is these tracking shots. So you get to mm. see the whole place in bits, but it's not a it's not a picturesque postcard vista. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to do a quiz? Quiz me, bitch. All right, I'm going to quiz you on Tarantino's oeuvre, as they call it. So what, there's nine films, nine questions? Nine films, nine questions. Let's see if you were paying attention. Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. What is, this is quite an easy one. What is Mr. Blonde's real name? Oh, it's, um, is it Vinny Vega? Mm. Victor Vega, Vic Vega. There you go. Yeah, yeah. You got it. It's, um, it's not Elton John. What's his name? What's his name? Not Elton John. What are you talking about? Oh, yeah, Vince. Yeah, what's the actor's name? John Travolta, not Elton John. (laughs) They're brothers, aren't they? You'll think, yeah. Yeah, um, so yeah, so John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction is the brother of Mr. Blonde. Are you feeling all right, Rob? <laughs> it's a sugar from these biscuits. Um, and Quentin Tarantino always hinted that maybe he'll do a, oh, yeah, a like Vega. an adventure film with those two together, the Vega brothers. Vegas, yeah. Mm. Pulp Fiction. What is in the briefcase? <laughs> That's my joke question. <laughs> well, actually, I watched a, a thesis essay saying that rock and roll is in the briefcase because everything is transferable to be in the story of rock and roll and how sort of producers came in and um, sort of took up black music and made it into like old school rock and roll and then hip hop. And But anyway, that's another one for something else. Okay. What's the real question? Name the song that Uma Thurman and John Travolta danced to in the diner. Oh, it's um, You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry. Yes, well done. Oh, two out of two. All right. Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. How much money does Jackie plan on keeping for herself? Uh, from the switcheroo? Mm-hmm. She, she specifies that she's going to keep a certain amount for herself. Yes, because she needs X amount. Isn't it 150 grand or 400 grand? <laughs> Something, <laughs> Something between 150 and 400 grand. No, you're completely wrong. 75? No. 12? Yeah. You didn't get it, Okay. $500,000. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I'm I'm going with inflation. Oh, okay. We've been through two um, yes. recessions so since then. So that's like a million. Kill Bill, uh, volumes one and two. Uh, yeah, One film, yeah. Name the American rapper who worked on the film soundtrack. RZA. Well done. That was just a nice little easy one after the difficult one. The Raza. Death Proof. Yes. Let's see if you really were paying attention to Death Proof. <laughs> Which car does Zoe Bell want to test drive? What kind of car? Oh, it's a white one. And it's the one from Vanishing... Bloody Vanishing Point? Um, I don't know. It's a Ford Fiesta. No, it's a 1970 Dodge Challenger. Challenger, yes. No, no, you don't get that one. That does not count. 
Inglorious Bastards. What are you writing down? I'm writing down which ones I get right and wrong. Okay, Inglorious Bastards. Mm -hmm. How many soldiers did Frederick Zoller kill in a single battle? He's very proud of this fact. Isn't it 300 and... (laughs) (laughs) No, he's there for eight hours. That's a 380, isn't it? Or 150? No. 75, 86. Right, I'm cutting you off. It's 250. That's what I said. Django Unchained. Yes, he is. Which comedian slash now a bona fide director plays a member of the KKK-esque group of idiots? Oh, Jonah Hill. Hooray. Comedian? He's an actor. He's Comedy a fu- actor. He's a funny actor, that he one. He is. He's very good. Okay, The Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson is transporting bodies to which Wyoming town? Oh, Red Rock. Oh, well done. Red Rock, yeah. Red Rock! Red Rock! You're never going to get this one. I might. I saw the film. Once Upon a Time. In Hollywood, thank you. In Hollywood. Name the Sharon Tate film that Margot Robbie watches at the cinema. It's with Dean Martin. The something. The apartment. The messenger. The magic hat. The... Let me name every film that's ever been created pre-1970. The... I'm the... It's me. I'm the class. Um, I don't know. The Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew. That's it. Yeah, I didn't get that one. And that's actually a really lovely thing, I think, that he did really well in that film, was showing the real Sharon Tate in yes. her own film. Yes, he didn't. Actually, actually, that's weird. Why didn't he splice her in? He spliced Leonardo, Leonardo yeah. into everything. Well, because that was a comedy effect, whereas with Sharon, it was honouring her part in ah. that film. So. And it was lovely. And she looked so much like her anyway. To a degree, yes. That it was fine. Uh, so well, I got, got five out of nine. One, two, three, four, five. Five out of nine. Not bad at all. Yes, indeed. It's not, it's not nine, but it, it's five. No, it is not nine. It is, uh, <laughs> it's five. So you were paying some attention. Five from, alive. Yeah. Not five alive. alive. Okay, so put into order his films in the order of your preference. What's your number nine? Death Proofs. As I've written down here. <laughs> Death Proofs. Wow, how many of them? Mine was Hateful Eight. Wait, where have I... Where have I... I haven't even put Hateful Eight on my list. Oh, my God. Oh, no. I knew I was missing one. Because that bloody Volume 1 and Volume 2 nonsense. So it's my top ten, because I'm counting Volume 1 and 2 as two different films. What's your number nine? <laughs> so my number ten is Death Proof. <laughs> okay, so your number ten is Death Proof. What's your number nine? Hateful Eight. Mine's Hateful Eight. My number nine is Hateful Eight as well. Uh, My number eight is Death Proof. What's your number eight? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, really? Yeah. Quite low down. I put it that far down because there were were better scenes in other films Mm. that I enjoyed far more than the scenes that that were in Once Upon a Time. Anyway, so my number seven seven is Kill Bill Volume 2. Oh, I put Jackie Brown. What? Well, it's just a general of what I... What I enjoy, and this is only going on gut feeling. Okay. So, the I think the second half of my list, like the bottom four or five, could probably swap around yeah, at any given yeah. time. At the top, the top four of my list are probably set more or less in place. Okay. But what's your number six? Django Unchained. I put Pulp Fiction. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Your number five? Inglorious Bastards. I put Hollywood. Oh, okay. So halfway through. Yeah, yeah. But, but also I've only seen it once. It yeah. hasn't sunk in amazingly like the other ones have. Mm-hmm. Obviously, for because you know they've been around for years and Hollywood's been around for three days. Yeah, in this country. Yeah. Um, 
Nil number four is Reservoir Dogs. Match. Whoa. Mine's the same as well. Your number three. Pulp Fiction. Mine's Django Unchained. Ah, so we were both exactly sweat flipped on those yeah. two. Yeah, oh. yeah. Huh. Your number two. Kill Bill Volume 1. I think Glorious Bastards. I really like Glorious Bastards. I really do. I like putting Glorious Bastards. It's got Bastards. good rewatch value. And what's your top Quentin Tarantino film? Jackie Brown. Wow. I love Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. I've put Kill Bill Volume oh. 1 and 2 because I consider them one film. If I had to, uh-huh. if I had to, I think the top spot would be still be Kill Bill Volume 1. Uh-huh. Um, and I think um, Kill Bill Volume 2 would come in between Reservoir Dogs and Hollywood. Right. So five. It'll be your new number five. Uh, it'll be my new number five. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. Mm. We've got quite a different view yeah. of his his career. But we both hate Death Proof. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I've, I've always liked his more cartoony edge. Yeah. His more cool edge, which is why Kill Bill is his ultimate film. It, it's mm-hmm. the one that I think when he dies, it will be Kill Bill director yeah. or Kill Pulp Bill Fiction. and Pulp Fiction director. Those two. Died today, Definitely. surrounded by no one. <laughs> surrounded by katanas and black suits. So that's it. That's series four. That's all of Quentin Tarantino's films. Wow. We're going to take a hiatus. Don't hate us for taking a hiatus. <laughs> uh, we're going to be back for our anniversary slash Halloween edition slasher Halloween slasher Halloween um, in the first year we did Friday the 13th in the second year we did Halloween this year we are staying awake we are staying awake we're never gonna sleep again uh, we're gonna do all of Nightmare on Elm Street films amazing amazing I can't wait to do it because I actually genuinely like those movies yeah stay tuned stay tuned so head on to Apple Podcast, Spotify Acast and TuneIn Radio Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the episodes when they're released. While we're on our hiatus and you're not hating us for taking a hiatus, go and listen to two aging hipsters talk about music over at Track by Track, the Trash Music Podcast, all in the usual podcatcher locations. And we are on Twitter at TornStubsPod. And let us know what you thought of our Quentin Tarantino season. We're off to have a royale with cheese. I was going to say we're off to have a foot massage. (laughs) Well, we can do that if you want, Daddy. Until (laughs) next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut! Cut!